Welcome to Glossonomia, Conversations About the Sounds of Speech. This is show number nine, and I'm Phil Thompson, and I teach at the University of California, Irvine, and do vocal coaching and whatnot. I'm joined here by Eric Armstrong. Hello. Hi. I'm Eric Armstrong, and I teach voice, speech, text, Shakespeare, accents, and dialects at York University in Toronto, and I'm a coach for theater and film. Excellent. So uh, this is, in fact, our ninth episode, and uh, that's really kind of astounding to me that we've been chunking these away. Uh, I hope we're getting a little better at it. Uh, If you've listened to any of the previous shows, dear audience, you'll know sort of what the shape of things are, uh, that what we're doing is talking in a conversational way about sounds of speech, something we both pay a lot of attention to. And we tried to organize these by those sounds. So I think the last one was th and the. Uh, we generally take a look at how the sound is made, uh, how it's spelled, uh, something possibly of the history of how it's developed in English, and then the variations that we hear in accents, dialects, and various languages. So today's show, uh, I had prepared a little correction, uh, a little expansion from our last conversation about the and the, uh, but I think we're going to do that as a special uh, separate episode. Yes, so Uh, that probably will have come out actually before this one. Great. On on behalf of our listeners, I just want to say thank you, Phil, for getting your daughter to to share with us that that information about uh, the in Spanish, and uh, I, I think it'll be a treat for our listeners. So we're going to go on to today's show. Yes, uh, this is going to be a slightly unusual show because uh, we're lumping together two phonemes, strut and nurse is the way J.C. Wells describes them, and we're also going to be talking about a range of vowel phones. Perhaps we should take a little moment to talk about phonemes and phones. I know we've done it before, but could you give us a a quick precis of that? Well, I I don't know that we use the word phone as often as we use the word phoneme. And uh, so phoneme, again, is a concept we have in our minds about a sound, uh, of whether it be a vowel or a consonant. Uh, and a phone is how that idea in our mind is realized, how it comes out our mouths. Um, in some instances, you can say that in one accent, a phoneme might be represented by a, a particular phone, and in other accents, that same phone might be connected to a different phoneme. So, for instance, uh, you might use the uh sound at the beginning of a word like about, but someone from somewhere in New Zealand might use it to say cut, um, yeah. so that that uh, same phone could be realized in different places, in different phonemes. Uh, similarly, we might have different versions of a phoneme in our own speech. These are called allophones. So uh, in different contexts in your own speech, you might say, Uh, a a phoneme differently. So, for instance, in Canada, um, when we say a word like loud, the ow phoneme uh, 
has a nice bright forward almost ah like quality at the beginning ow and then when we put a voiceless consonant after that vowel sound we get an allophone instead of ow we say oh and so the initial sound is more closed more central and so it's a bit more like a schwa at the beginning of it uh, and we call that feature Canadian raising and it gives us an allophonic variation on the ow phoneme Terrific. And we, we usually describe these phonemes, and you and I have been throwing these back and forth uh, based on their lexical set word, which is just a, a word to describe that particular phoneme. The two that we're dealing with today are strut and nurse. Uh, in a way, this is a response to our schwabisode or schwepisode, however you'd like to say, the episode about schwa, in which we talked about the uh sound occurring in, for example, the word comma. We talked about it as a, uh, a vowel of absence or a, a vowel of unstressed positions. And when we start to think about the stressed form, we actually get a couple of different phonemes, perhaps. I also thought it would be really useful for us to take this time to lay out the grid of the central part of the vowel chart, because mm. it's uh, there are monsters there. Uh, can be a little bit indistinct. My students uh, often joke about when they listen to online resources, including the one that you created for Paul Meyer's website, they click around the middle of the vowel chart and hear, uh, 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 it all sounds the same to them, even though they're clicking on a different symbol. Yes. So uh, I, I had a thought that we could talk a little bit about this term vowel quality, hmm. uh, as opposed to vowel length. Uh, let me take it back. There's, there's a way of thinking about the difference between stressed and unstressed sounds, uh, which has to do with how those sounds change. And you gave an example of about and, let's say, love. We could think of those as being the same sound, but they differ in terms of how long they are. About is very short. Love is very long. Let's hope love is long. <laughs> However, there's something different about those, probably, at least in the way I say them, uh, a little bit of a difference in my tongue position and uh, the shape of the vocal tract. And Would you agree that vowel quality and shape of vocal tract are essentially the same thing? I, I think that when we say vowel quality, uh, I think that's what we mean. That essentially the articulation of it, the shape of it, uh, creates something that's distinct from other vowels. So the quality, the essence of that vowel is defined by the shape in your mouth. The shape of your mouth isn't just the shape of your tongue. Yeah. We can be sort of seduced into thinking that. We have to remember that the pharynx often does things that many of us are unaware of, and uh, that uh, things like schwa, which we think of as being sort of the neutral vowel in the middle of the mouth where nothing's going on, there have been studies to show that stuff's going on in your pharynx. Um, yeah. So that uh, frequently uh, there are things beyond our awareness uh, around vowel quality. I think the other challenge is that people use quality hmm. around voice quality or vocal quality, yeah. uh, meaning things like nasality or vocal fry or pinginess, all, all these lovely terms to, to 
describe qualities of voice that's radically different from vowel quality. There's a third distinction that I feel like we probably ought to say, which is that when we talk about quality, we're not talking about value, and mm-hmm. that, that can be a little bit confusing. But one wants to have good vowel quality, don't we? High-quality vowels. So, uh, yes, yeah, so we're talking about how these vowels are distinguished based on their position. We're talking about, then, you could say, differences in vowel quality. Uh, we are in the practice of thinking about vowels and mapping them out onto a sort of Cartesian grid, uh, which I suppose we ought to put one of those up on the website since we refer to it so frequently. Sure. Certainly There's we can put the chart that comes from the IPA. Perfect. And we might be able to find some others, from more historical ones from other people, um, people like Daniel Jones, who was probably one of the most influential English phoneticians in terms of defining the position of vowels. We might be able to drag in some from uh, maybe J.C. Wells' uh, book. We could scan a, a little one. Terrific, because I think that we need to have a little bit of a, since it's a map, a physical map, uh, I find myself in talking about these things, moving my hands around, which I know is not very effective for our podcast listeners. The, the chart that we're discussing is really a chart of the shape of the oral cavity. And we could imagine that the most rudimentary form of this chart, or the most physiologically accurate form, would be a cross-section of a human head facing to the left. Hmm. with the nose on the left-hand side and then the lips on the left-hand side and the back of the pharynx all the way back at the right. Then up is up and down is down. So the most forward and most up sound is E, which we talked about in our first episode, in the fleece episode. The most back and most up is U. I'm saving discussion of lip rounding for a moment. The most down and the most back is ah, and the most front and the most down is ah. Let me make that a little more front, ah. Uh, That mistake I just made is really a good indication that the bottom part of the vowel chart is a little narrower, and that there's a little less difference between those two sounds. It's actually, I mean, when, when we look at the acoustic properties of that chart, that corner is a bit of a... Uh, uh, something in our imaginations. It's more of a curve in that corner, whereas the other areas are a bit more distinct. We can picture them more corner-like, whereas there's kind of a blend of where the difference between uh, close and open starts to shift into the difference between front and back. Yeah. Now, those are our markers at the four corners of, of articulatory possibility. And it is absolutely true that that's not taking into account pharyngeal position, not taking into account whether or not the velopharyngeal port is open, not taking into account right now lip position or the sideways topography of the tongue, whether it's more curved or less curved, more bunched or less bunched. So it's only part of the information, but it's a good way to keep track. So when we start to talk about the central vowels, I suppose we ought to do as we did last time and go to the dead center, which is schwa. And there's pretty much agreement. Uh, that's at least a point that most phoneticians can agree on, that schwa is right in the middle. It's a good uh, way to define it. 
And so what we get there is an uh, we could move that around. We don't have a, an absolute dead center there that we always hit when we say words that have uh, in them. Uh, but we're saving that for now. Right now we're just marking out the grid. So if we go straight up and go as high as we can in the middle, uh, I went a little forward there for a moment. That barred eye symbol, as we've discussed before, is dead center and straight up the middle. I'm saving rounded and unrounded forms for a while, if that's okay. Sure. Now, halfway in between the barred eye and the schwa is a symbol that looks like an E only backwards, uh, which we'll right. call uh, reversed E. It may be unfamiliar to people who've done some study in phonetics because it's uh, a symbol that's used in the International Phonetic Alphabet, but certainly in the world of voice and speech teachers is really quite rarely used. And in fact, I believe there was a blog post by John Wells uh, saying that he almost never encounters it in his use of the world's phonetics. Exactly. And uh, I think that he and I might disagree about that in terms of uh, what we're hearing. But at least we can say that on the chart, there exists a symbol to describe unrounded, central, higher than schwa. Right. I just want to bring up for a moment an interesting thing I ran across in my uh, research for this. Henry Sweet, the uh, great <laughs> and sort of primal phonetician, uh, uses this interesting term mixed. So he says there are front vowels and there are back vowels, and in the middle there are mixed vowels. And I had never really encountered that before. I, I think that's gone out of fashion. Mm-hmm. So we have this turned, or rather reversed E, which is, I'll, I'll try and execute it. Uh, uh, uh. Does that sound about where you would put it? Yeah. Now, if you went forward, you would get a, and if you move straight back from there, a, that seems about on the same level in terms of tongue height. Yes, I think you could go even further back. So it's an unrounded O, 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 if you really pull it back. Right, right. right. That there. mid close place, A is the front and O is the back. So if you unround that O, you get O, O. If uh, we have to be sure is that, that we're right? not talking about the ram's horn, however, which is. Wasn't, isn't that the same height? Yes, but it's not at the same centrality. I didn't want to be confused about that. Uh, yes, no, it's, it's, that's the f furthest back that yeah. one can go. So, yes, in a range from A to ram's horn. Uh, Eric, why don't you take that journey nice and slow sure. for us? So, I, so if I start at the front and I head through the, that reversed E symbol, the, 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 is the term mid-close... Yeah. Central vowel. Is yeah, that I right? think that's right. So I'm going to do mid close front, then mid close central, and then mid close back. So I'm I'm shifting the front front central back plane. So it should sound like this. E
Yes, that sounds about right. That, that sounds exactly the way I would do it. By the way, I just opened up my handbook of the IPA, and it says close mid rather than close mid, <laughs> not mid close. I knew there was something ah. fishy about that. That's great. And so you say potato, <laughs> I say potato. I say potato. So uh, then we have schwa, and then we're going to go lower than that, which now I'm nervous that I won't get it right. Uh, from uh, schwa down is open mid. That would be at the same level as e, and same level as o if it were rounded at the back. So just moving down from schwa, uh, does that seem about right to you? Uh, 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 yeah. So is that the symbol that's represented by an upside-down type A? Actually, that's the symbol that's represented by the reversed epsilon. Right. It looks like a three. Exactly, exactly. Uh, that's what all my students call it. So, yes. Uh, uh, we, uh. That is at the level of E. So let me try going back from E. E. And I've gone all the way back now. Yes. Now, there's an interesting symbol at that back position that I do want to bring into the discussion, and that's the turned V, which is the unrounded companion to the aw symbol. Right. So if you started with aw and unrounded it, but kept your tongue in the same position, aw, do you think I moved my tongue? I don't think I did. Oh, yeah, I think that's pretty much the sound I would have made. The, uh, uh, so this is, a, this is what I think of as the Texas strut vowel. <laughs> strut, it's a, a very back version of strut. In some versions of English, strut, strut, it's very ah. Uh, There's a confusion a, potentially, though, because uh, Texas is a great example of an accent where there's tongue root retraction. Right. And we can move the tongue focus uh, back without necessarily moving the tongue root back. So That's right. I should be able to do ah, 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 ah without. Uh, I'll try and do it uh, first without tongue root retraction, then with. So I'll start from ah, Uh, that little <laughs> darkening that you hear, that's, to me, tongue root retraction. Tongue root retraction, right. Well well pointed out. Another way to uh, sort of triangulate this um, very back sound represented by an upside-down V is to um, take an ah sound like father and then close your mouth a little bit, raise your tongue a little bit. So it would be ah, ah. That sound. Exactly. And that ah is, for those of you following along on a chart, is a script A, a lowercase a, uh, down at the back corner, the very lowest, very backest position. Now, if we go forward, uh, now we'll talk about that sound that you had mentioned, which is below the turned, or rather the reversed epsilon, the three. And that's the turned a, the turned printed A. The printed A has a little uh, sort of quails 
thrip thing on it. It has a, uh, a, little, a little tail. A, yeah, a tail that reaches up. Right. That symbol always looks like a quail to me, like a California quail, because it has that little crest on its head. Oh, okay. It does sort of look like a kind of rounded lowercase e with a little crest on the upper left-hand side of it. Uh, yeah. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. It looks like, if you imagined a an italic lowercase e, right, where there's no hard edges to it, mm-hmm. very curvy, and then you put a little crest on the upper left-hand side of it. The other trick you can do is take your piece of paper, turn it upside down, draw a type A, and then turn it right back up, and you get the symbol. Great. My hesitation was because I thought you were describing the right-side-up print ah. A, and you're describing the upside-down print A. Got it. And that's what you're doing, too, aren't you? Uh, now I am. <laughs> uh, what I was saying was that the regular right-side-up print A looks like it has a little oh. quails thing on it. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I have this way of describing that symbol, and I call that a type A, because A is in type. Yeah. But I also say that it looks a little bit like a typewriter viewed from the side, and that that hook on the top is the carriage return. (laughs) If you can imagine typing on the lower part of it, the bowl of it, if you will, and that hook on the top is the the carriage return that you hit when it goes ding. Type, 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 ding. I think I just showed how old I am. Yo, but that's going to really help students, because they will have a clear image of remembering that. So... Coming back to the turned version of that, and by turned we mean it's upside down. Uh, reversed we mean that it's flipped back, uh, still right side up, but turned to the other direction. Mm. The language is a little confusing, I'm afraid. So that sound is lower than the reversed epsilon. So, uh, 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 uh. does that seem about right to you? Uh. Ah, ah. More open. Yeah, Yeah, I think you're right. Ah. So if we took a journey from schwa down, we'd go... uh, It is very difficult for me in that journey not to pull back or go Mm -hmm. forward. However, I think that I use that sound quite a lot, actually, in my speech. Uh, Because when I'm making a central vowel and it's more open... I think I'm just opening it straight down. So, right. That is, I, I, yeah. I have to say, uh, uh, I think of, I tend to think of that ah, uh, the turned type A, as being sort of uh, a back version almost of an ah sound. It's certainly uh, on the same level. Ash, ah, and then pull it back a little bit. Ah, ah, ah. So I get that very bright ah sound that. I associate with uh, working class, working class London, uh, Strat, Cap, that sort of thing. That's interesting, and and the, that we can save that for our discussion of how the the sounds are realized. Uh, it to me gets a little confusing in this area of the vowel chart, knowing whether we're back or front, and. Uh, variations in tenseness and in nasality have a huge impact on where I think I am on the chart. Mm. So we haven't discussed another dimension of the chart. Uh, We've been thinking about it in two dimensions. But another variable is lip rounding. And I guess I could go all the way back up to the top of this central area where we had the barred eye 
and round that does that seem about right yeah that's where I'd put it and it you're right that it should be the same amount of lip rounding as we would have on ooh but with the tongue in a more central position so if you traveled from ooh that that seems like I've got gone pretty much to the middle so that's the barred you symbol. Exactly. And I think that uh, I, I have students who use that at least as the beginning part of their goose sound, a little bit of goose. But again, we'll save so that for... they might for go a, goose, so slide into a more back ooh? Uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, we'll, we'll save that for our discussion of that phoneme, I guess. We don't want to wander down that hallway. Uh, so there's a, a <laughs> rounded form of uh, the very high central vowel. We don't have a rounded form on the chart of the schwa, which is interesting to me. Mm. But we do have a rounded form of that reversed E, uh, which is the bardo. Uh, Brigitte. Uh, exactly, which we discussed in the... Uh, the, the episode because we don't want to confuse the symbol of the theta with this Brigitte Bardot. Another way you could think of it is it, that it's a a reversed E or any kind of E just completely closed off so that it's got a bit of a roundness it's just next door to its unrounded version. So you could with a tiny little stroke of the pen turn the reversed E into a bardo. Yes. Uh, and the, the thing to remember about barring a symbol is that that centralizes it. So if we have E and we put a bar across it, yeah. it moves it towards the center. If we have an O and we put a bar across it, it moves it towards the center. Same with an O symbol. That gets barred and it moves to the center. Yeah, I hadn't really ever thought about it that way, but that seems quite right. Uh, and that's not the same as putting a tilde over it, which is a different thing altogether. Mm -hmm. So, a as I said, there's no rounded form of schwa, but that doesn't mean we can't make it. Let's see. Uh, 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 uh. It's just awfully close acoustically to its neighbors. Uh, yeah. So if we, it, it yeah. uh, reminds me a little bit of French rounded vowels. Yeah. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, that's interesting. If I were transcribing uh, a French acteur, that uh, sound, or uh, your French is better than mine in being actual French, not vaguely remembered French, uh, <laughs> you probably can think of more words that have that. Well, typically those, those are actually more front than w what we're talking about. So The rounded French vowels, e, 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 are m uh, front rounded vowels. So what about peu? Uh, as opposed to centralized ones. How would you transcribe uh, un peu? Uh, un peu yeah. uh, would be uh, 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 it's uh, a, I believe it's an O-E digraph. So that's the so fronter one. Yes. Uh, uh. Where would you, do you think you'd use a bardo in? Um, I might, uh, a bardo? Yeah. Probably not, but I might get to the um, the next symbol we haven't quite oh, gotten, good. Let's, it, gotten to. Let's it. go ahead. Uh, that's the reversed epsilon with a little rounding bit on it. 
So it's closed. Exactly. Uh, my students like to think of this as the sideways butt symbol. Uh, yes, I use that term too. That's the technical term. Exactly. For it, it will stick in their memory, that's for sure. Yes. Um, but uh, I've also called it the rounded three mm -hmm. or the closed three. Um, the uh, parallel to that, we have the open O, which is a backward C. Uh, if you think of three, when you take the ends of the three and you close the ends until they form a, an O-like shape, then you get the, that, that sideways bum. Uh, by the way, the, the symbol is officially called the closed reversed epsilon. Uh, closed reversed which epsilon. Which makes plenty of sense. So if our reversed epsilon was slightly more open than schwa, uh, 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 then if we round it, uh, 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 uh. And for me, the way I teach this, the trick thing is I remind people of the SNL sketch where the uh, Hans and Franz called people girly man. <laughs> yes. Uh, that seems to be roughly the, the articulation that they were making, a rounded uh sound. And if they were, it's probably if they were speaking German and saying word like Goethe, they would be making a more front. Yes, exactly. Goethe. This is, this is a, but it's, you know, it's faux Austrian, <laughs> yes. I think. Right? They're trying to sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger. California. I've heard... Yeah, that seems like exactly Hurt. what you would do. Yeah. Uh, probably Wolfgang Puck as well. We could compare them side by side. Hmm. There's uh, no rounded version of the turn type A, is there? No, and I, I suppose it doesn't have a little line to sit on, so <laughs> it may be left all on its own. But also, I think the, the lack of an unrounded version of these two central symbols is an indication that nobody's really been bothered to do it mm. because the other ones are awfully close. And so I agree. no phonetician has yet said, I can't accurately describe this language unless I have a rounded version of that symbol. And so it just hasn't come up. Now, while we're talking about phoneticians saying that they, they need a symbol, <laughs> um, there is a, a, a discussion going on in the phonetic community to add another central vowel, um, a, sim a symbol below the turned type yeah. A, and that would be a small cap A. So it would be a, a capital letter A, but at the height of a lowercase letter. Like we've seen with other uh, small, lower, uh, small uppercase letters. Right. So the same height as the symbol we use for the I yeah. symbol, which is also an uppercase letter. Um, and that would represent a, a sound halfway between a, that sort of Italian a, and the a sound, the sound in word like father. Um, the, the argument against putting that symbol in is that there aren't languages that have a three-way uh, separation of a, a, a. And uh, that the, the argument is that it is... The symbol serves as merely a sort of Jonesian exercise, uh, Daniel Jones being the person who defined these vowel spaces. Yeah. Um, I think it might serve people like us quite well to have a, a sound that's halfway in between ah and ah, 
because frequently you get, you know, you, in an accent, you'll encounter a bright version of an ah, of my father, yeah. uh, that's not, not quite father, uh, but it's not father. So places like in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, that I think would be a very helpful Well, I, I have just recently been working on a show in which I had to uh, teach actors how to say the phrase, I love you, in many different languages. And so I listened to samples, and I was, for my own purposes, transcribing them as, as narrowly as possible. And I very frequently ran into the phoneme, ah, uh, in which I had to make a decision, a flip decision, between whether I was going to transcribe it with the front version or the back version. And in fact, a lot of languages kind of land right in the middle. I think and that... what I'll tell you what usually happens is that they're going to use the type A, yeah. that symbol for the, f the front symbol. I, I uh, did an exercise um, many years ago now when I presented a, a little... Thing I did at the uh, VASTA conference in Chicago, and I went through the handbook of the International Phonetic Association, and I looked for every example that was represented in the, the handbook with a type A, and I found all the recordings mm -hmm. of them, and I compared them, and uh, there were no two that were alike. Um, many were as far back as being an O sound, what I would represent as a a turned script A, uh, and somewhere as bright as what I would consider to be an A sound, an ash in my my own personal usage of the IPA. So there's a lot of variety of how those symbols Indeed. get used. Indeed, and, and I'm not saying we should abandon ship and just use a handful of symbols phonemically. Uh, I think it's useful to be a little Jonesian and to say uh, this symbol represents as precisely as I can approach to the pronunciation that I want you to do. Uh, it's useful in talking about phonology to deal in a slightly loose way, to, to say, this structure exists in language, these words are pronounced in sort of this way. But when it comes to describing accents, when it comes to teaching students about how their mouths are uh, being employed, I think precision is very useful. And I, I, in, in the way that uh, having more words in the English language gives us greater power to describe yeah. things succinctly, having f more symbols on the chart makes it easier for us to help a student or a client recognize yeah. a sound um, quicker. Uh, now, that said, I am not going to uh, expect my students to be entirely accurate with their use of central vowels. Uh, I can give them some leeway. But I, I find it really interesting to get them curious about trying to be as accurate as possible, uh, to argue about whether it's a, a reversed epsilon or a turned A is, I think, an important exercise. And from my own personal experience, I would say that it took me a lot longer to be able to distinguish subtle differences in mid-central vowels than... Uh, than I would be able to do with, say, um, you know, more front or more back vowels. That that there's something about being uh, a more extreme uh, action of the mm -hmm. articulators in, in a f uh, in a front or back position that you can feel what's going on more 
easily, more accurately. Um, in the same way that if one's doing a big physical action where you're extending your arms out, you can really feel yourself in space. When you're doing something more subtle, more closer to where your habitual patterns are, uh, it's more difficult to, to notice. Subtlety takes greater attention, greater self-awareness, and uh, I think that that does make it more difficult for our students to uh, differentiate subtle differences in the middle yeah, of the Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's really why we've done this in this episode, to go through the, the grid. Uh, not because we're necessarily going to say this is always this and this is always that, but to get an idea of what the territory is before we start talking about the phonemes. That tension between the phonetic reality and the phonemic perceptive reality is a, a very interesting and, and very fraught one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I think if we can go back to that question of, well, if a word like about and comma, do those have the same uh sound that we get in a word like hut, above? Do they, are those two vowels that are the same? Yeah. Um, the, the problem is that I don't say above. <laughs> I might say above when I'm trying to, to help someone who misunderstood what I was saying. Yeah. But normally I say above. Um, and when I'm saying that within the context of a sentence, the difference between those two vowels is really quite noticeable. But when I say a word in isolation, usually the weak vowel gets dialed up a and little bit. We talked about and this so, last uh, time, too, that there's a sort of Heisenberg uncertainty principle that the observed sound changes. Mm -hmm. That's a complete misunderstanding um, of Heisenberg. I apologize to any physicist. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, yes. Mr. Heisenberg. And if Schrodinger is listening, I apologize too. Yes, and yes. the cat, we apologize to <laughs> it too. Um, so the, uh, the, but I, I do feel that uh, it's as if we have sort of an acoustic or auditory dictionary in our brains that gives us the the weak forms of sorry the strong forms yes. of every vowel uh, so a word like above we we don't hear in our minds in a way the way it actually comes out of our mouths um, we hear the strong form yes. of that vowel and so the strong form of a schwa is the the strut vowel a uh, um, I don't know if there are people for whom the strong form of a schwa is a nurse vowel that they hear above in their accent. Um, I suspect that people with non-rhotic accents probably have a very different sense of schwa than people with rhotic accents. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and they may not. Uh, a non-rhotic accent will bunch letter and comma words together, for example. Uh, and perhaps nurse would fall into that same category. Uh, I, I seem to be getting ahead of myself, though. Uh, I think the next step for us is to talk about the, the phonemes, nurse and strut, and to deal with them sort of separate for a moment from their phonetic realization. The first thing I think I need to say is that when we're talking about nurse today, we're talking only about the non-rhotic form, uh, nurse as it occurs in non-rhotic accents, because we're delaying uh, our discussion of roticity uh, just to get everybody really excited about it. 
I suspect we may need more than one episode to fully deal with it. So, I suspect. So. Uh, let me start with strut. As you've been saying, we could think about strut words as words that are in stressed positions, the sound in a stressed position, but comma in an unstressed position. So there's a difference between the and thus. Hmm, yes. and, and that's a difference in stress. Uh, that's a difference in uh, length, perhaps. And I think it's a difference in vowel quality for most people. Uh, I think of A.A. A. Milne's Winnie the Pooh. Uh, the author is talking to Christopher Robin, asking about the bear, and he calls him something like Winnie Pooh. And Christopher Robin corrects him and says, no, it's Winnie the Pooh. And he spells it T-H-E-R, Winnie the Pooh. So in emphasizing the word the, uh, he, uh, his expanded form uh, is an er sound rather than an a sound, which I find interesting. Yes, I think that's fascinating. So he really identifies the, that as a exactly. nurse vowel. Whereas I would say, no, Winnie the Pooh, and I would probably open it beyond where I would put other strut vowels. But for me, it's, its archetypal companion is strut. Uh, comma, stressed, is strut in, in my speech, I would say. Yes. And, of course, there are those people for whom strut isn't really a mid-central vowel. It... it m- may be something altogether different. Exactly. Uh, again, let's, let's delay all the fun realizations of strut for a moment. Let's uh, make sure we know what the category is. Uh, one way of defining it is that it's the stressed counterpart of schwa. Uh, I'm taking a look now in J.C. Wells' uh, Accents of English to see his list of strut words. Here we go. So here are a few of them. Cup, cut, suck, much, snuff, fuss, rush. Almost all of them spelled with a U. Then we have some O words. Done, come, love, mother, stomach. And then some of them are O-U, enough, young, double. And two are versions of double O, flood and blood. If you think about uh, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, Pyramus and Thisbe, there's a joke on this pronunciation. Uh, uh, I think it's Thisbe, or maybe it's Pyramus, who says, what's stained with blood, uh, and it rhymes with... My, uh, it's Pyramus who says, her mantle good, what's stained with blood. So for Pyramus, or it maybe for the audience, although I think it was probably funny at the time, foot and strut are merged around the uh sound. And if we go back historically, that's where this sound comes from. Exactly. And so the spelling that we see of U, O, and double O, and O-U, those were originally pronounced in a much more rounded form. Uh, and in parts of the world's English, 
It's e- exactly, the exactly. And so the spelling indicates a f- former pronunciation. The current pronunciation is a centralized version. Uh, that is at least what I've been able to find in looking at historical change. So originally it was sort of a reduced version of an yeah. ooh, so an uh sounds And in truff. fact, uh, I, I would say that my students who speak their uh, foot sounds more and more centrally, they get foot, foot, foot. So they're centralizing those sounds even further. But again, we can save uh. that for a foot episode. So strut is... Historically, O and U spelling. It is, for me at least, central in in pronunciation in vowel quality. However, it is often transcribed with a turned V symbol, which we've already discussed as being on the chart, up quite far back. And do you do you call that turned V? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I follow the tradition of calling it hut um, because it looks like a little hut that you can yeah, go Yeah, I underneath. think that's an accurate way of, um, of describing it. And it, and I, I'm not alone in that. I actually got that from somebody else. It's a, it's a fairly common term used for the upside-down. And it's down clever thing. because it has um, the sound that it's describing. Excellent. Uh, like and uh, looking in the phonetic symbol guide, uh, Legisaw and Pullum... Uh, warn us not to confuse it with the capital lambda, which is a really tall TP. This symbol is just like a V turned upside down. And it... That's exactly what it is. uh, Let me go back for a moment to the nurse phoneme. Again, only as realized in non-rhotic accents. do we need to remind people what non-rhotic oh, is this far into the show? Let's do it. Since you've brought it up, I think it's always worth saying. Why don't you go ahead and... and so, roticity is the quality of having R quality. So, uh, we talk about vowels taking R quality, um, and the nurse, in, in my speech in particular, is a great example because I have a fair bit of R quality. Um, and a non-rhotic accent is uh, one where vowels like nurse have no R quality. That is, the tongue does not do any curling or pulling back action to add what we associate as or the molar R bracing sound. Which so we will get into later. Yeah. So we get uh is the sound of a nurse without R coloring and nurse being one with. Yeah. So non rhotic Rless rhotic with lots of R, coming from the Greek letter rho for And I R. believe J.C. Wells actually invented that term. Uh, he did. Very clever. <laughs> All right, so uh, nurse uh, has a variety of spellings. Uh, as we've discussed with strut, there's a sort of centraliz- centralization historically of the U sound. So U-R words make up a big hunk of these, like usurp, hurt, lurk, church. Also, IR words like birth, girl, fur. Uh, there are some YR words, ER words, EAR words like earth, and OR words. There's really quite a wide variety of uh, 
spellings of this uh, this lexical set, uh, which you could read as just something centralized followed by R. As you say, the realization is uh, in in RP pretty central. Nurse. Uh, their realization of strut may be significantly different, uh, but for some speakers, strut and nurse, if they were non-rhotic, strut and nurse, would be pretty similar, I would say. I think there are some North American non-rhotic accents where strut and nurse are actually not that far from yeah, one another. It's, th- there's a rule, or at least a, a something that happens that sounds tend to not want to merge if they're going to interfere with our intelligibility. If if everything gets lumped together, then we don't make a distinction. So if you find one sound shifting in one direction, the other sounds in the territory will either move out or move into the place that that one just left. So it, it would be difficult probably to find uh, an accent in which they were completely merged, uh, but I'm, I'm open to be taught about that. I, what I have next on my list here uh, is a discussion of the phonetic notation of strut and nurse, which we've sort of dealt with, but I, I, I want to go in a little bit into the history of it. Uh, hmm. th- this has been confusing for me, and I think confusing for a lot of people. Uh, the first confusion is that of of strut. It is very common, and certainly this is the way I was taught, and I think the way you were probably taught, the way a lot of people are taught, is that the hut symbol is the way you transcribe strut words, and that the hut symbol represents ah, ah. yeah, <laughs> uh, a stressed form of schwa, uh, which would mean a more open, more tense form of schwa. As we've discussed on the chart, however, uh, the, the turn V, or the hut, is way at the back. And so using that symbol to describe that sound is a little bit problematic. That Very few people, in fact, pronounce their strut words with that vowel realization. Uh, you had a great uh, way of describing this, sort of how much territory a phoneme takes up on the the vowel chart. What what was that about strut being Texas? In in my mind, that the the historical use of the turned V or hut symbol to represent a range of possibilities for the strut sound. So essentially, using that symbol phonemically rather than phonetically, uh, it allows that symbol to represent a large area on the phonetic chart. So not all the symbols are equal. And as a result, I imagine the turf that the uh, hut symbol takes up on the chart as being sort of the Texas of uh, the phonetic chart. It's the largest state in the union and has the, uh, uh, of the contiguous states at least. Maybe it's Oklahoma uh, because it has a panhandle that sticks out to the west. Uh, because it does seem to me that the territory where we're usually thinking about the, the way most people I know who are phonetic transcribers transcribe this sound, a uh, strut, is the turn V. Uh-huh. And so they've yes, migrated absolutely. that symbol to the middle of the chart. 
Well, you know, I, I think I suspect what happened is that the the turn V symbol has always, uh, you know, was originally developed by English phoneticians and that the IPA wanting to put it on the chart uh, chose to put it where it ended up on the chart uh, in spite of the fact that that's not traditionally the sound that that turned V has I, represented. Yeah, but I Does think that, that there's sense? been some cognitive dissonance in phonetic use it, for, for a while. The, I sent you this image of uh, Daniel Jones' vowel chart uh, from his, I think, 1926 edition of the Pronouncing Dictionary. And he has the turned V, the hut, uh, placed on the chart at the same level as all, but really far in. Right, but he doesn't have it mapped over beside exactly. all. Exactly. So, so it's, I, I'm, I'm saying that's right. It, it's always been close to a central vowel, and only recently has the IPA started to represent it on the chart. Yeah, they're doing a little housekeeping, making sure everything is all orderly, I suppose. And I I suspect that many uh, English language phoneticians fought hard against the adoption of that placement of the symbol. If you look in the preface to Kenyon and Knott's Pronouncing Dictionary, they do almost exactly the same mapping uh, of the hut symbol being close to central. Uh, in J.C. Wells' The Longman Pronouncing Dictionary, uh, he seems to be placing that in a more, it, certainly in a central position, but quite a bit lower, which mm-hmm. I think is a reasonable way of thinking about the way he might be thinking about strut. strut. Whereas I'm going to Quite a yes, bright sound. and I'm going to be placing mine much more towards schwa, strut. And if I said sure. it, if I lengthened sure. it, oh, you got a problem with your strut. <laughs> I guess I have to do my own accent, don't I? Strut. <laughs> uh, that's, that's sort of uh, centrally backish. It's sort of where Kenyon and not have well, it. Let me try the word love, chart. which I think that I can extend. Uh, I will extend my love. And uh, I'll start outside of my accent, but in an accent of America. Love. Love. That's pretty high, I'd say. That's pretty mid-central. And then closer to what I would say, love, love, love. And if I said it short, love, 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 I'm probably doing it more centrally. Love, love. And then if I open it more, love, Love, love is a many splendored thing. So that's right down at the bottom. That how is lava and love distinct? It's distinct by centralization, lava. I think. Lava, lava, you. Yeah, I mean, there there are those singers who have been taught to sing love with the front open vowel. I yeah. love you. Um, in that sort of Italian style. Well, uh, um, but in tra- we, 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 we probably speak it somewhere in a range of different areas, depending on how much stress it gets, how much length so it gets. So I'd like to insert a sound file into the podcast at this point 
uh, which is Trudgill's RP word list. Uh, let me just play that now for my own listening pleasure. Pot, bird, pot, bird. So I've just played pot, bird. And what I'm hearing, and I think what you would hear as well, is pot, that sounds quite forward and open to me, and bird being much closer to a central low sound. Would you agree with that? Sort of pot, bird, yeah. Uh, so fairly, a fairly open nurse uh, valve. Exactly. And, and the pot is, if it were an Irishman saying pat, 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 those would be almost overlapping, those two sounds, it seems to me. It seems quite forward to me. So that's, that's his... Exactly. RP He's version. collected it from a young lady uh, saying pot. Uh, again, there's variability in pronunciation. That's sort of the point of what we're saying. Uh, it's, it is, however, confusing sometimes to, as I said before, to really get your head around what's forward, what's back in this lower area, it seems to me. So we should also talk a little bit about the realization of nurse, although I think we've been hitting on it. Uh, in my accent, in your accent, things are complicated by roticity, and we'll leave that out. Uh, but if I were to say, uh, in a non-rhotic accent, let's say a Southern American uh, non-rhotic accent, I'd say nurse, nurse. Uh, probably I shouldn't use that as an example because there's another thing happening there. N I'll use an RP example, Nurse, nurse. That seems a little lower than schwa to me. Would you agree? Yes. And so it would I be would. beautifully represented by the reversed epsilon, which is on the IPA chart lower than three, l lower than schwa, the three. Right. There was a practice of transcribing that sound and that symbol as higher than schwa. And Jones used this before he then switched over to a different way of transcribing. And Kenyon and Knott seem to be placing the, the sound either at schwa or above schwa. And there's some confusion about that. Uh, if you look in the phonetic symbol guide by Lajasol and Pullum, uh, they tear out their hair and gnash their teeth a little bit about that. I looked into the way Daniel Jones used, uh, transcribed these sounds, let's call them comma and nurse. And comma, he transcribed as a schwa, which we've discussed. And nurse, he transcribes as a schwa with a colon. Now, we've come to think of those colons as being representations of length, that without a colon, it's short, and with a colon, uh, with those little two paired triangles, I suppose, is the more accurate way of describing it. As a, as a longer sound. But I was very surprised in my reading to see Jones describing that as actually an indication of tongue height and tenseness, that he was actually distinguishing the and heard 
on the basis of tension, not on the basis of length, although certainly in English speech, those, the unstressed and stressed forms of those sounds will be different by length. But I also think that in that somewhat dated version of RP, uh, like the schwa, was more open, that they'd say things like, give it to her, her. Yeah. And so uh, that uh, m by comparison, ha. may have been more closed. So it could be a combination of factors that not only was nurse higher, but schwa may have been So the lower. high nurse wasn't as high as uh, I would think of it being above. Now... Right, because schwa is a little the, bit The lower. other place that we can draw our thoughts about how to use this chart uh, are, are from the American drama school tradition of Edith Skinner. Uh, and if you mm. look at, I don't think I have one of her charts around. Uh, yeah. Let me grab mine. Uh, okay, so on hers, uh, I'm looking at page 11 in my old copy of Speak with Distinction. Uh, she's got stir uh, as being sort of at the, the mid-central point, the stressed symbol that looks like a three with a length mm -hmm. mark after it, stir. And then surprise, her schwa is below that. And below that, further still, is her hut symbol. With she but has she has them all cup. arrayed, arrayed so on the center line. On the center line, what she calls mid is the the central line for her, and uh, that she has a dotted line going through the center of her chart mm -hmm. from left to right, uh, where she says, "You begin to see in the mouth," and just below that dotted line is th is the word stir, which represents the uh, uh, um, so her mid-vowels, or central in our language, uh, her central vowels are stir the surprise cup. Um, so stir being more closed, the surprise a little bit more open, and cup. And, and she's putting the schwa w where everybody else is putting the schwa. Um, on her ah. chart, it looks lower. Interesting. Um, yeah. So uh, we do have a tradition, and a tradition that's certainly convenient since there are other people using it, to transcribe nurse with the reversed epsilon and to think of it as higher than schwa, to transcribe comma with a schwa, and strut with a turned V or hut. And yeah. I've gone back and forth. Uh, when I teach it that way, my students look at the, the IPA chart and correct me. <laughs> Because not that's not the way things look on the chart. So it's a point for interesting discussion and generally stays unresolved in an interesting way, I hope. Yeah, I mean, I really think that there, there are ways of thinking about it that involve tradition <laughs> to a certain degree. Sort of saying this is traditionally how these symbols have been used to represent sound. And that the current practice of the IPA is to use this symbol in a different way. So the turn V is a more back version, and the turn type A is perhaps yeah. a more front version. If, if you use the turn V to represent a very large area, then if you're like me, you end up using an awful lot of diacritic marks to indicate fronted versions of that a uh, vowel 
because the fact of the matter is most versions of English, the strut vowel is further forward if you're going to use that turn V. If you're not going to use a turn, if you're going to allow yourself to use the turn type A, which I, I believe is really a, an yes. innovation in the IPA. It's one of the younger yeah. syllables on the chart. And uh, in terms of the, you know, if we refer to our older traditional text, people like Kenyon and Knott, they don't use the turn type A because <laughs> yes. it didn't exist yet. Well, the fact of the matter is that when I'm transcribing something on the fly for my own purposes, I'll use the turned V for strut and the reversed epsilon for nurse, and I'm perfectly happy to do so. <laughs> I think part of the, the th thing is that yeah. we know what we mean when we, when we write those things. And the question is, it, will there be a turning point? Will be, there be a point where people will say, you know what? The, the IPA chart says the symbol means this. So we're going to use the symbol to represent well, I reached that, that point sound, regardless of what classes, the tradition is. In my classes, I reached that point when my students said, why are you making us do it that old way, uh, when clearly all the resources I can find online and all the charts that are printed in nice authoritative text all use something different. Uh, I love that. I love the fact, as you discussed in the, the, the episode, having a student say, no, you're wrong, is a marvelous, marvelous thing. Mm-hmm. So I do. I have one response to that. Actually, you know what's not a marvelous thing is to say this chart is confusing, <laughs> and um, I, I I think it can be very frustrating if you tell people that a turn V is a, uh, and then they look at the chart and it seems to show that it should be a, uh, um, then they they don't know what to throw out. Who's wrong? Is the chart wrong, or are are you wrong? Am I wrong as a teacher? Um, and they, they want a single answer. And often I have to say, well, there are different ways of using things and different people who do it, do it in different ways. They don't want that answer. They want one right answer. And that can be very frustrating. Yeah. And it can lead people to reject IPA as a useful tool. And that's frustrating to me because working with actors, I think it's a big sell job yeah. to convince them that the IPA is a useful tool. There's a lot of hard work of getting these symbols to be at your fingertips when you're Here's thinking of the sound. Here's my point of view on this. I, I think that the resolution of cognitive dissonance is an important thing for everybody to deal with. And one way of resolving cognitive dissonance is to pre-digest it and to uh, present students with a single authoritative system which is going to be used in one way, there's no ambiguity. But I think that that's a loss of a teaching opportunity that in dealing with unresolved cognitive dissonance, people look more deeply into themselves. And this is the case uh, when, when somebody gives me a piece of information about the way the world works that doesn't make sense to me, uh, I would I think, be better served to take a good long think about it than to just say, that's wrong. <laughs> and so I like my students yeah. to take a good long think, and I like them to do it in front of me uh, so that in that process of resolution, they grow to be more sophisticated in their thinking. That, that's a great thing. I, I think so. And I, I wouldn't do that to uh, an actor that I was working with to try and get them to get their accent right because I got called in in the second week of rehearsal, and we got to get on with it. Yeah, there there are different ways of applying this work. 
So the last thing on our list is uh, just to deal a little bit with the realizations in various accents, which I think we've kind of touched on. So strut, as we've discussed, has a sort of brighter and more open, perhaps more back, perhaps more front version in versions of RP and Cockney. People will say strat or uh, strat, strut. There are RP, sorry, there are Northern English versions of strut that are rounded, yes? Yes, strut. Exactly. And there are even variations amongst that that are very interesting. There are the more open, the more rounded, strut, strut. And there's a range between a full-on strut and a more open strut. Uh, Those are very far off of the territory that we've been discussing because they involve lip rounding and a higher tongue position. Right. And there are also some of those in parts of Ireland as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, a lot of my students have a very central uh, and fairly high version of strut. Uh, in short, there, there's a difference when they're stressed and unstressed, as we've discussed. But if somebody were to say, love, I love you, that's a pretty strong and southern influence sound. And I don't think many of my students would have that strong a sound. But they'll definitely say, love, I love, I love. Love you. And so that is not as open, and it's at least central, it's at least schwa, and it may be higher than that. I, I think, as, as the sample we played earlier, I think demonstrates that some of those strat can be front uh, quite a bit. Uh, as you say, the sound is Texas. It covers up a lot of territory. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's the, I think it's the biggest range that any single phoneme has uh, on the chart. One of the books I looked at in preparation was a book by Albert Salisbury called Phonology and Orthoepy. Uh, it was published in Madison, Wisconsin, and so I take him to be an American speech teacher uh he, he wrote this book, or at least uh, he wrote the preface in 1878, and he talks about uh, U as in up or O as in sun, the short U. He says, this is an open sound, being like short A and short O, but one removed from Italian A. So he's really associating A as in father with son. So he's really asking for quite an open uh, version of this sound. Son, son, yeah. And at one point he discusses uh, having students do it more than they would ordinarily do, that for good teaching they should learn how to do it in a more open place. Uh, he, he writes, The sound is one of easy utterance, requiring little muscular effort, and therefore liable to intrude itself into many places where it does not belong, to the exclusion of the more elegant sounds, especially in unaccented syllables. So, in a way, it sounds like he's also talking about it as a schwa. Exactly. And this is the sentence that I think is the killer. The excessive use of it is a mark of laziness and barbarous negligence in speech. 
So he is uh, warning us not to use schwa, not to say son, but to say san. Yes, and but also to not slip in uh in any uh other uh place. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And also not to have any epenthetic, you know, no films, no athletics. Yeah. Um, I I suspect that's what he's pointing at as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's move on to realizations of nurse. Uh, again, non-rhotic realizations of nurse are probably what we should uh, keep to. Sure. Uh, just staying in this book, this phonology and orthoepy book for a while, I found it really interesting to see that he makes a distinction between the sound in urge and word as opposed to the sound in verse and girl. And if I'm reading him correctly, he's saying urge and word, verse and girl. That there's something really much more front, much closer to eh, and he describes that sound as tilde e. Hmm. And he 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 decides to do that because that's the way he says it, or do you think he does that because it's spelled that way? I think it's a spelling thing because the second word in there, orthoepy, really is about how we can find in spelling the clues for pronunciation. It's a very yes. strange point of view. Yes. Now, I have to say, though, that nurse, um, probably historically... Um, some of the words that are now part of the nurse group may have been part of other lexical sets. That yes. words like heard probably were more like heard. Uh, I actually think that uh, uh, they were actually pronounced with long i, heard. Uh, the, I think it's mm. George Crapp in his book about American English uh, quotes an early dictionary writer or early writer on language. Uh, warning Americans not to say uh, heard and feared, but uh, to let it relax to heard and, and or feared is not the <laughs> heard and feared rhyme for some speakers, right. and they right. shouldn't, according to him. Right. Uh, um, but I was thinking of uh, a herd of sheep. Ah, yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Uh, that would be heard. So there would have been a contrast, I think, uh, Heard and heard. Although uh, those perhaps eh heard and heard went through a change to go towards e, uh, as in words like seen. When we start looking back through history, it gets a little confusing. I'm afraid it does. But so, uh, when yeah. when working in uh, some uh, Scottish and Irish versions of English, we encounter quite a, a split of yes. the nurse set. And so there are some aired air words and some ur pronunciations that uh, uh, I think are linked ultimately sort of to spelling pronunciations that as English came into that culture, the, there was a, a sort of a spelling connection uh, or a greater connection of the pronunciation of the words to the spelling than there is today. And so the version of English that was created in Ireland at that time had a, a, a greater difference between words like herd and norse. It um, makes sense that, uh, yeah, perfect porse, uh, they're spelled differently, P-E-R and P-U-R, perfect porse. In a way, you could say that it's a, uh, a greater refinement and retention of distinction in those accents. Yeah, and I think that when um, when RP was becoming the dominant sound, that argument 
that uh, particularly Scottish English speakers were making to say, hang on a second, RP is not a better form of English. Scots is a better, Scottish English is a better form of English because we actually still have O in our uh, our vowel system, and it more closely resembles the written uh, representation of English the way it was originally. And it, as you said before, it comes down to who owns the radio station. Exactly. Uh, so staying non-rhotic, we uh, went into roticity there for a moment. Uh, we did. In a couple of American varieties of non-rhotic accents, nurse sounds get a very interesting little diphthongization. So you get mm-hmm. nice. Nice, yeah. And, and uh, a lot of people associate that with uh, sort of the Bowery Boys, New York sound, yeah. Toity Toid Street. Um, but it's also present in places like uh, New Orleans. And I'd say the difference between those two is one of the openness or closeness of the first part of that new diphthong. So you get nice, hey, what a nice nice. Uh, and nice, nice is more central, less rounded at, in the first part of the diphthong, it seems to me. So which one was which? Uh, right. So uh, <laughs> New Orleans hurried, hurried, and have you hurried about the buried? Uh, and then New York hoyed and buoyed is a little bit more open. Uh, right. That may just be a question of how the general posture of the mouth is in both accents, though. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what's fascinating to me is that that second part, that little ishness at the end is sort of like roticity taking a different path. So, herd. Uh, let me do a little morph from herd with ro- a roticity bunching to the i. So if I say herd, 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 <laughs> uh, the action of the r bunching is very similar in a way to the action of arching forward towards that i sound. And they could be happening simultaneously. Right. And it's possible that it's staying as a central vowel, sort of more of like a barred I kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely a, say so. An I. Um, uh, I'd, I'd love to uh, go to even more bizarre versions of Nurse. My, my favorite at the moment is the the sound that we commonly hear in African versions of, uh, of uh, English, not African-American English, but African English, mm-hmm. that frequently Africans will pronounce nurse as ness, so that uh, the er vowel moves totally forward. And there are some uh, African versions of English where nurse and dress trade places. So yeah. for uh, dress, they say drus. And for nurse, they say ness. Um, and so, to me, that's just delightfully not what I do. And so I like it. Well, yeah. And in fact, uh, it's a question of, as always with accents, how your own phonology uh, can map the English phonology onto it. So if I don't have an er uh or anything like it, I have a couple of choices. I uh, wander around and the... the Closest may be the front version, ness. But you could also hear it as nas, as an ah, in fact. So I might say my strat and nas 
in the same way. Or in the other direction, I might say, Jess and Ness, or Ness and Dress. It's huge to me, <laughs> that difference, because as you say, it's unlike the way I do it. So those seem like very extreme things, but if you don't have in your vowel inventory an appropriate vowel, you're just going to get the closest one you can find. Yeah. Um, other are there? I know we took a little tour to Africa. Are there other North American versions of nurse that we wanted to get in? Well, I think we want to stay with the non-rhotic ones, and that limits our uh, our right. possibilities. You could certainly and hear somebody say nurse, nurse, in a just simply non-rhotic and very central way. Uh, in fact, in New York City, which is uh, sometimes non-rhotic, you'll get uh, roticity coming in on nurse words. Uh, the same thing's sort of true in Boston as well. Uh, and you and I did that study last summer of uh, a variety of American cities and found that nurse, unlike other uh, potentially roticizable vowels, uh, tended to keep more roticity in some of these non-rhotic accents than other sounds. Yes. Uh, that, that's my overall feeling, is that in North America it's fairly uncommon to find nurse without our coloring. Um, and the two versions we've mentioned have been sort of uh, diphthongized morphs, nice. Uh, but I, I, I could imagine nurse, nurse. Uh, I'm not roticizing that much. I think there are some New England versions of nurse that, yes. that you know, if we think of uh, Mayor Quimby, I think he's saying <laughs> yes. nurse. Uh, I've heard no a verse. Uh, yeah, if you think of actually the sort of... Uh, Northeastern uh, antique voice of presidents. Right. I've heard. Uh, yes. And that is tenser, certainly, but it is heard. It's fronter. And it seems to me to, to be very similar to this 1879 uh, distinction between uh, you as circumflex you, uh, and E as verse and girl, eh. And I, I think if we were to find a sample of uh, Frank, Franklin Roosevelt, we would probably hear heard pretty far forward. Right. And if, w while we're talking about pretty far forward, we could also talk about that variation of uh, sort of archaic uh, stiff upper lip uh, RP that you heard one heard in um, army officers yeah. uh, uh, of a certain period uh, who would say things like girl as gel. Yes. Uh, so again, heading forward to an eh like sound. And part of me wonders whether the, the fact that African English frequently goes to eh has, you know, that the army was so dominant in its teaching of English to Africans, the British army, uh, that maybe that's where the the role model for that eh, eh like uh, that makes quite a bit of sense uh, came from um, what we're lacking and, and what all of us are lacking is a really good uh, book on the subject of African accents uh, of English I don't think we have those well described in many places I I agree you have to you know suss them out by listening to samples yeah. 
Um, okay. Well, I think we've kind of covered a, a bunch of variations. I think you're right. And, and we've gone a little bit long today. Uh, I have probably a student wandering around looking for me right now. So uh, probably a good idea to wrap up. Uh, we do have, uh, as always, our imprecation to you to uh, send us email, uh, to go online to iTunes and leave any kind of comments you'd like. Uh, and also, if you can manage to send us an audio comment, uh, that would be fabulous. It would be grand. And uh, you, you know the email address. It's glossonomia. At gmail.com? Yeah, I just forgot it, so maybe they should be reminded if I can't remember it. Excellent. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure as always, and I look forward to the next one. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.